I'm definitely impressed, especially some of you I know live a bit of a distance away. It looked really bad, the roads. <laughs> a few of you can walk here. It actually may be more dangerous walking, I don't know. <laughs> the other day, uh, just before my retreat, I thought, I'm so fortunate, you know, I can just walk to the new building. And I was going to jog and check in with David, our construction manager. So I started running. I got about 50 feet, slipped, <laughs> landed on my wrist and my hip. So. Drove. So then I drove. <laughs> By the time I recovered, it was I was late for my meeting. So I'll be finishing tonight and then next Sunday a, a year-long series of talks on the Eightfold Path. What, what I'll talk about next year. <laughs> um, and with a special focus of looking at our spiritual practice in terms of daily life, not exclusively as a something we do when we sit down and meditate, but something that we can carry with us throughout the day. And most of you know this basic uh, view of the practice the Buddha laid out, the Eightfold Path as it's called, it can get divided into three sections, which is easier to remember than the Eightfold uh, way. And it's not meant to be linear, although it's often taught in a linear way. And so we have sila, samadhi, panya, are the three Pali words. Sila is really uh, mostly refers to restraining ourselves from acting in a way that's harmful to ourselves or others. So learning to live harmoniously. So it's a world of ethics. How we speak, how we earn our living, uh, how we relate with one another. Is it in a way that creates harm, hurt, or in a way that's helpful and kind and generous and accepting? So part of the path is bringing mindfulness to this area of life. Part of the path is bringing mindfulness to samadhi. Samadhi is really, instead of looking at our external ecosystem, like how we interact with one another, we're looking at our internal ecosystem, how the mind is relating to itself and relating to objects. And we're creating harmony, but now inside the mind. So the first place of practice is harmony in the world, the second is an internal har harmony. We call it serenity or calm, peaceful, quiet, happy mind, joyful mind. So this is the practice of samadhi, bringing mindfulness to the processes of the mind and developing skill. Just like we need to bring mindfulness to our, the processes of interrelating with one another, and being in a community and being part of a nation and being part of the earth, the earth crowd. <laughs> And, uh, you know, being part of the earth crowd without destroying the earth. So we have to do the same thing. You know, we've got this inner world that we have to learn to be harmonious with. Otherwise, it gets toxic, just like the external world can get toxic. And then the third uh, place of practice is panya, or wisdom. And this is really a specific part of the mind. We call it view or understanding are some of the ways. And so here we're learning to have uh, a view or an understanding that is uh, a mirror, a perfect mirror of the way it is, the way things are. So 
instead of having an understanding and then trying to massage reality to fit our understanding, which you see happen a lot, you know, with different religious, spiritual, and non-religious views of things, you know, we're, we're, we're all doing this. We're trying to make the world fit our view of things. And so from a Buddhist point of view, what we're trying to do is realize the view that, or, or, or um, engage in this spiritual process so that a view arises that's in perfect alignment with the way things are. And the way we do that is we come in tune with the way things are, and then the view arises out of that connection, that awareness, that presence with things as they actually are in our lives. And then this is how we, in a sense, heal toxic views. So we have toxic relationships, we have toxic mind states, and then in a more subtle way, toxic views are sort of deep imprints, like ways of perceiving the world. That's what a view is. It's just a habit through which we think and live and make choices and act in the world. Now, mostly we're oblivious to our views, the views that I, the level of views that I'm talking about. So it's not a view that oh, McCain should have won or Obama should I'm glad that Obama won. But it's, it's, a, it's kind of uh, assumptions that we don't realize are assumptions. That's really what the Buddha means by view. Like the classic one in Buddhism is we live, we don't realize it, uh, except if you start doing your practice and coming here and studying. But mostly people don't realize that we have a view that I'm a self, apart from the world, apart from everybody else. That this is an assumption, a view that we live through or with, but we don't realize it. We just, it's like, that's what a view is. It's something you don't think is a view. You think is the way it is. <laughs> you know, we are a part. We are separate. So that's not a view. That's how it is. But it's an unquestioned assumption. And then because it's unquestioned, we just continue to live with it. And the, the idea of this path of developing outer harmony, inner harmony, and an, an understanding in alignment with the way things are, the idea is we're converting our normal existence, which is seeking out comfort, right? That's mostly what we do with our lives, is seek out comfort and try to get rid of discomfort. So we do that in terms of our intimate relationships. You know, we're trying to make our partners more comfortable for us. <laughs> you know, how can I make Wim slightly more comfortable for me to be around? <laughs> you know, how can I make common ground? You know, the, the center, the organization, the, the group, the community that shows up, how can I make it more comfortable for me? So we're constantly doing that. And of course, and people, are, everybody's doing it to us too. And so this is the push and pull or the tension in life is we're trying to make life comfortable. That's our normal way of engaging our life experience. And the Buddha is saying, well, this is actually a much more skillful way to engage our life experience. So to take our life energy and to aim it in the direction of external harmony, internal harmony, and a deepening or an understanding that's, that's coming into alignment with experience, with an experience that's based on clarity as opposed to distraction. So that... No matter what would happen, if we saw it clearly, if we were present with it, it would fit. It wouldn't surprise us because it 
our view includes that that might happen. That's a good way to know when our view is in alignment with reality is nothing surprises us anymore. And it's not that we predicted it, it's not that we're psychic and we know what's going to happen, that our view, it's like the view of no view. Like you get these sort of paradoxical phrases, especially in traditions like the Zen <coughs> Buddhist tradition where you know, the view of no view or uh, don't know mind, which is a is a way of viewing the world that it can't be captured conceptually. So we live, we move through our life without defining things, without being dependent on our definition. So you have an, an, a partner or a good friendship, but you don't, you train your mind not to define it, not to define who the other person is. It's actually possible to have a very deep, fulfilling relationship without defining the other person. In fact, maybe it's a prerequisite <laughs> for having a good relationship is not to define the other person. And maybe it's a definition of a toxic relationship to have a fixed notion of who the person is. Even a good definition. Then, like if I have this idea, this def definition that Wynne is this very sweet, wise person, then whenever she exhibits behaviors that don't fit that, I have to massage reality. I like I'm not see it or blame somebody else for that behavior I'm seeing in when or blame myself. You know, we do that sometimes. We say, oh, I must have done something wrong that when is acting out in that way. But if we don't really define our friends or partners, then we allow them, we give them permission to be who they are. There's not that tension of them not being who we expect them to be. And uh, the relationship is more alive and free. And these three things work together, as you can imagine. This is why it's not a linear model. Of course, we need wisdom to even realize that the normal mode of trying to acquire comfort is sort of limited as a way of living, of spending our life, just trying to be comfortable, because it doesn't really lead anywhere. You know, one of the things you can really see when you study history is you know, like, and even just looking, comparing different cultures, or even if you go backpacking sometimes, you know, after a while you get pretty comfortable sleeping on the ground and carrying a 50-pound backpack and, and you know, walking up steep inclines and even worse, walking mm -hmm. down steep inclines and things like that. And uh, you realize that comfort is relative. You know, all of a sudden this, you know, having... Uh, a bowl of instant noodles is like the most delicious thing in the world. <laughs> you know, but when you're in town for a while, it's like most restaurants just won't do. It's the special restaurant, your favorite restaurant, you know, which is different than what it was three months ago, you know, when that's what really captured your imagination, you know. So comfort is a relative thing, and, and because of that, we're never satisfied. We're satisfied for a while. Something's comfortable for a while, and then we want something else. Like someone, we just finished the kitchen cabinets at the new building. We got this beautiful paper stone kitchen uh, countertop, which is like uh, so much more expensive than the typical Formica, but it's eco-friendly. You know, they make it out of paper, and it's really beautiful and harder to take care of than Formica, more expensive than Formica. But, you know, it used to be granite was in. Now these sort of eco-products are in. You know, and now they're finding all the people that spend a lot of money on granite and other stones that they have radon in their homes 
from the stones. You know, and then it will be different. And then in a while, it, you know, from Micah will come back in. People will like that retro look, you know, back to the 70s green for Micah or something like that. <laughs> we got, I remember, maybe it was in the 60s, we got that sort of fluorescent green kitchen carpeting. And, <laughs> and yeah, and, and the cabinets were... They were nice wood, but then we did something with green and some kind of stain. You know, you could still see a little bit of the wood grain through the green stain. <laughs> it's amazing what we do. But what it teaches us is how limited seeking comfort is, because the mind isn't actually satisfied by anything. We, because our minds can always imagine something else after a while. So. What we want to do is orient towards developing this outer harmony, inner harmony, and these two really support the development of understanding. Uh, uh, wisdom or understanding in alignment with the way things are. And then as wisdom develops, that inner alignment, we could call it, then it's easier to live harmoniously externally, and it's easier to have a quiet, serene mind. And then that allows for more wisdom to develop because we have insight into how it is and then we just come into alignment with that. And then the harmony gets deeper, inner and outer harmony, and then it's this positive feedback loop then. And the whole point of that positive feedback loop, the way we know that this is alive in us, that we're making this transition from a life of seeking comfort to a life of the development of understanding or the coming into alignment with Dhamma, the way it is, the way things are. The way we know that that's alive in us is we start to feel lighter, less burdened by life. Not that our life situation is better, like we have a more secure livelihood or our friends and partner like us better, you know, or treat us better. That's not, because all of those things can change, you know, no matter how much people like us, no matter how nice our partner is or our job situation is, it's not stable, you know, it could change, as some of us are finding with the current economic situation. But understanding doesn't, it's stable, like the deepening of insight, that by definition, this is not something that's unstable. When we come more into alignment, it's like uh, we might have momentary forgetfulness where, where we get caught up in some old habit pattern of fear or anxiety of craving. But the, the system, mind-heart system, tends to kind of reorient itself back to the deepest insight that we've had currently wherever sort of we're at. And so it's, it's an, a, you, for most people, a very gradual deepening of insight where our view, our understanding is coming into alignment with the way things are. So the basic problem is not being in alignment based because we're not seeing clearly. So we develop outer and inner harmony. That's what allows us to see clearly which leads to the development of wisdom or the coming more into alignment, the development of understanding.
So one of the telltale signs then is this feeling of freedom. There, it has the practice and the development of practice or the development of this path has this distinct flavor of freedom. <coughs> we feel more free in the kind of situations that arise for human beings, you know, meaning our ordinary life. So it's not that our ordinary life is different. We just feel more free when we go shopping, more free when we're in traffic, more free when we're negotiating something with another person, more free with an aging body, more free when we get the flu, more free when we have something good happen to us. You know, We win the lottery or we get a new job or we fall in love. More free, less afflicted by even those wholesome things. That's the telltale sign. And the other telltale sign of the development of this path, the Eightfold Path, is the uh, development of confidence, which is expressed as heedfulness or vigilance. It's like we're into it. We're, because we know it works. We know that committing to developing outer harmony, inner harmony, the quietness and peacefulness of the mind, and understanding wisdom, we know that it works. I mean, it really takes care of us, and it actually takes care of everybody. You know, as we orient in this direction, not only is our life working better, but we're not the cause of suffering for other people either, or not as much at least. So then there's this heedfulness. It's a quality the Buddha talked about all the time, that we just, we get into being skillful in life. Skillful in terms of external harmony, like how we relate to money, how we relate to the community, how we relate to our family and our partners and friends. Like really, there's no end to how skillful we can be. You know, we may feel like, and this is this is actually a real um, hook, way of getting caught, is that we, we start becoming relatively skillful, like more skillful than our friends. <laughs> and then we get complacent. We, we feel like oh, that's good enough. But the more we develop the practice, it doesn't matter if we're the most skillful person in the group. We want to. We have. We realize directly in our life, we have every incentive to become more skillful. So, this is true in terms of developing outer harmony. True in terms of developing samadhi, this inner harmony or inner peacefulness. In terms of understanding, until you can shout with. In Buddhism, it's called the lion's roar, which is the expression of an enlightened person when they say, done is what had to be done, meaning that they've become skillful externally, internally, and in terms of understanding. And so they're, they're at this point, that heedfulness doesn't need to be uh, sort of part of the ego stance. It's just... There, there, there's no habit energy left except about being skillful externally, internally, and the understanding has already been developed completely. So that's kind of a definition of, theoretical definition at least, of an enlightened being, is they've done the work and you can shout out loud, done is what had to be done. <laughs> and you can join the, the great lineage of men and women who have done that, you know, and if you read through the, the suttas, you know, there are occasions where, not just the Buddha, because it wasn't in the Buddhist tradition, it's not just the Buddha who finished his work, but even at the time of the Buddha, there were thousands of men and women who had the same degree of 
wisdom or enlightenment as the Buddha. They weren't necessarily as good of a teacher. They didn't have like the personality that allowed them to, to teach as effectively. But in terms of the freedom that they experienced in their life, the ease, they were equals. There wasn't like more free. There was, they had, so this is something, um, you know, we can all have that lion's roar at some point, and it's actually appropriate to aspire to, to have that confidence. So I'm willing to work until there's no more work to be done, to develop skillfulness in all these three areas until we can see there's nothing left to develop. So if you get to that place, please come to Common Ground. And when I ask if there are any other announcements <laughs> at the end of the evening, you can just stand up and say, done is what had to be done. <laughs> and we'll just... <laughs> I'll make sure to let you know if it happens to me. So more recently, so I'm kind of summarizing the Eightfold Path these last two weeks before the end of the year as a way of uh, summarizing the whole year. But also I wanted to spend a few minutes finishing up Samadhi. So of the three, Samadhi is that middle one I've been talking about, which is uh, quieting the mind or that inner harmony. So the quieting the mind doesn't mean there isn't any Thing happening in, in the mind. It just means the mind isn't agitated by what's happening. So it doesn't mean there aren't memories arising or we're not hearing sounds. Because sometimes, and this is a confusing thing at the time of the Buddha, the sort of pinnacle of spiritual understanding before the Buddha's insight, what he learned from his teachers. You know, the Buddha went around in India at the time and learned from all the best teachers. And the sort of pinnacle of spiritual insight at the time was developing um, deep states of concentration where you'd get, in a sense, a, a, a temporary kind of liberation where you train the mind basically to retreat from sense experience. You can do this. Anybody can do this if you work at it enough. And it's a good thing. It's a wholesome thing to move in the direction of, which is of, of quieting the mind so that we're basically suppressing the habits of the mind that agitate itself, like worrying or even analyzing, even in a subtle way like, you know, looking like I noticed when Matt was sitting earlier uh, at the beginning when I first saw Matt, I, I noticed that his hair was shorter, you know, and then you kind of analyze, now, did he get that haircut? I can't even help myself. It's just the habit of my mind to analyze things. You know, and I, when you walked in, Kenneth, sat down, I realized as soon as you said, oh, I haven't seen Kenneth in a while. You know, and so I've analyzed, now, did I really not see him for a while or did I just not notice him? He's been around. And so even subtle things like that are agitating for the mind. And so samadhi is really about uh, discovering what agitates the mind. We can see things, hear things, think things without being agitated by them in gross ways. Like I could really see somebody and really be agitated like, oh, yeah, we've got that unfinished business. Was she or he thinking of me? Should I do something? 
you know, that's really agitating. But even in subtle ways, we get agitated, like just subtly wanting someone to like us, you know, is agitating for the mind. So samadhi is really learning how to be alive, especially in the context of this talk, where we're talking about not just meditative experience, but being out there in the world. So how to have a quiet mind when we are interacting, when we are hearing things and seeing things, and we have responsibilities to do things. It's really about, uh, there are many ways, but one of them is really learning to uh, do one thing at a time. So what we tend to do is uh, we have an experience, we see somebody, but then that triggers a pattern in the mind, and then we follow the pattern. But instead, we can see somebody, and we can notice that the pattern's been triggered, because that's happening. But in a sense, we're just not picking up the pattern. We're not suppressing it, like we do in deep states of concentration, where we're not even, we're so focused on the object, the breath, a sound, a mantra, we're so focused on that, that we're not even aware of what's being heard. It's not like the ear doesn't work anymore, but the contact with the sound experience is suppressed. The mind is so fixated, focused, absorbed into whatever its meditative object is that we have it sort of literally removed itself. Once the Buddha met kind of a braggart, someone who thought his practice was great, and he, he said, once I was meditating next to a stream crossing and... Uh, a bunch of merchants with, you know, I forget the number, but like 50 ox cartons filled with their products, you know, marched by, and it didn't break my concentration. This wasn't even aware, even though it was just 25 feet away. And the Buddha, not to brag, but to sort of, uh, sort of put the person in his place, said to him something like, you know, well, that was nothing. Once when I was meditating, you know, and practicing deep concentration, so he was doing concentration practice, there was this horrific lightning thunderstorm, you know, I I forget exactly, but it was like he talked about uh, houses being struck nearby and being blown to bits by the lightning, and he talked about the degree of the thunderclaps and the number of them and the proximity of them and how he he wasn't even aware it was happening. You know, he only found out about it later. And I think even people were killed in the storm, you know, right there in the area that he was sitting. And uh, so that's like you really remove yourself. You're not really a sensing being, a sensitive being. You're, You're free of the five physical senses. And even the gross aspects of the mind, like thought, memory, won't arise in those deep states of concentration. But that's not going to help us so much in the world. So what we rely on is what could be called momentary concentration. You can, you can have really deep states of concentration, but the object is changing moment to moment. But in every moment, there's a, there's a kind of profound giving ourselves, giving the mind or the heart over to the experience. And it's really, it's actually um, joyful to experiment, to develop this practice. At first, the mind will resist it, but it resists it because it's not its habit. Like we like, we've we've gotten in the habit of liking that multitasking, kind of the mind flitting about doing a lot of things. 
but actually there's a there's a, a healing pleasantness to just giving ourselves over so when we're brushing the teeth we're just brushing the teeth when we're eating we're just eat when we're feeling sad we just allow ourselves to feel sad you know to really be aware of what it's like to be sad when we're feeling inspired we give ourselves over to that experience of feeling inspired when we're cold we don't struggle against the cold we really open to the cold but we're not holding to that because it the experience may change and then we really open to that so this is the momentary quality of this kind of concentration so we can have samadhi you can have a day that's really wild like a lot of different things are going on it was busy you had uh, a lot to do a lot of responsibilities but you feel really alive at the end for a while uh, in transition from where my job in Washington DC to going to grad school at UC Berkeley I worked in uh, Taos New Mexico as a bar- bartender for six months and uh, it was a it was a busy bar and uh, and there was a lot going on we had this great music playing live music and uh, if you ever go to Taos there's a sagebrush inn <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is a neat place to work and but it was it was also you know just being around alcohol I, I stopped drinking after that job and haven't picked it up since but um, the it was an interesting place to develop Samadhi this momentary Samadhi because if you try to sort of figure out how to be a good bartender like had a plan it wouldn't work the only way to be a good bartender is to like really show up moment to moment you know and the cocktail waitresses would come I'm not sure what the political c- correct word is now for that is there one server server <laughs> <laughs> would come you know and so you have uh, one or two sometimes three of them working with keeping track of different things and people at the bar and um, and just you know stocking and washing the dishes and you know all the different parts of it that you had uh, and cleaning you know keeping it clean when there was downtime and and things like that and uh, it's sort of like uh, giving ourselves over to what comes next you know just doing whatever comes next and just doing it completely until something else comes next you know whatever next shows up for us but we have to the there is still an activity it isn't just sort of not doing anything it is work in a sense that we're not letting the mind uh, do what it's in the habit of doing the mind has this sort of lazy tendency to not want to be vigilant to not want to be fully engaged because we think it's tiring to be engaged and it does eventually get tiring to be engaged I mean the mind gets tired the body gets tired but it's actually more tiring to resist doing what comes next I'm sure you've noticed this it's like when you get a day off I mean not a full day off but you're not doing what you have to do so you're at home and you get to do all the things you're supposed to have done a long time ago and how exhausting it is to spend that day avoiding doing all the things you were supposed to do you know how lousy you feel by the end of the day of avoiding just sort of pittering about avoiding all the things you're supposed to do it's really hard work 
And it's energizing, actually, to get involved and just to start doing something. You know that feeling where you just start applying the mind? So I'll just end with this wonderful list. And people dismiss this list because they think, oh, I'll never have deep states of absorption, deep states of concentration. And that's really what this list is about, the jhana, the jhanas. Maybe some of you know that word, deep states of concentration or absorption. But these five factors that support absorption also work with this momentary concentration, not the more profound states of concentration that we read about the great practitioners experience, you know, where they, I'll just tell one last story before I go through these five jhana factors, but I've done some jhana practice, and one of my teachers, Lee Brasington, talks a time when he was in, practicing in Thailand, and uh, there was like a county fair, the equivalent of a county fair, and in Buddhism is like really tied into the Thai culture, it's just like one and the same of the culture, and so one of the things that you'd get at a county fair is you know, the local monasteries would pull out the best concentrator, you know, meditator in the bunch, and he'd sit on a platform and he'd go into jhana. At the, you know, it'd be like a four or five day affair. He'd go into jhana and he would just stay there. And because you can, people who have this, this talent of going to deep states of concentration, they can basically hold it for days. I don't know how many days, but several days at least. And this guy did that. And Lee talked about, you know, he saw him and just kind of really, you know, if you're sensitive, you pay attention, you can really pick, on, pick up on the peaceful vibe when someone's in a deep state of concentration. Even coming into common ground, you know, during one of the sits, or if you come in at 7.30, somebody might have been here for 10 minutes and their practice is developed, and you just kind of get a sense, oh, I'm going to sit next to that person. You know, I'll get a little contact high just being close to them. <laughs> Maybe my mind will quiet down too. And so Lee met, you know, noticed him the first day of the, the fair. Oh, yeah, that guy's really, you know, there's something peaceful about being around this guy. And next day he, was, he came and he saw the guy who was still there. You know, it's like, oh, you know. And he said, I forget how many days Lee said, but it was more than a couple. He said he started looking a little disheveled, you know, by the fourth or whatever day it was. You know, he was still there, but you could just see that his energy was sort of dissipating. You know, then eventually the mind, like all things, deep states of concentration end. You come out of these states. Um, but, but so these five jhanic factors are really talking about what the mind needs to have absorption. But this is true even with momentary absorption, not just with the profound long states of absorption. And the five qualities, vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, kagata. So uh, applying the mind, connecting the mind with the object. So this is a real, sort of, in a sense, a more willful effort where we're directing the mind to connect with the sensations of the breath or connect with the brushing of the teeth or connect with, you know, when we're talking with somebody, like really landing in the moment and really really showing up when we're talking, really listening, really seeing, really connecting with the person we're talking with, not kind of being into what's coming next, but really being there in that interaction. This is the Ritaka, connecting or applied, um, yeah, applying the mind to the object, rubbing up against, or the image that's used is the striking of the bell. 
It's the striking. And the interesting thing here is the striking is what dispels sloth and torpor. So this is, goes back to what I was saying that really uh, practicing this uh, uh, um, showing up and doing one thing at a time, this is the connecting part especially, it's, it dispels, it puts aside the sloth, the dullness in the mind. I remember Joseph Goldstein, one of my important teachers, um, he talked a lot about this principle that when you don't have enough energy, make effort. Right? If you need more energy in your mind, in your practice, do something that requires effort. Making effort leads to energy. And we think just the opposite. You know, If I rest, then I'll get some energy. And in a physiological sense, of course, that's true. At some point, we need a good rest. And then we'll feel refreshed and we'll be better off. But often, what the mind needs a rest from is its dissipated state, its scattered state. What it needs is to apply itself to something. And then it will be free of what's exhausting it, which is its dissipated, its movement flitting about, not really landing and connecting. So this is a particular taste we want to develop like how it feels good to connect, to show up, to do what comes next in our lives. And I'll just mention one more and the next Sunday I'll go through the other, the all five of these again. But the second one then, in terms of the, bear, the bell simile, it's the resonance of the bell. So you have the striking, which is the connecting, and then it's the sustaining of the attention, the sustaining so this is what gives our uh, awareness some depth. It's like a soaking in, like we notice something, but there's a sense of the mind uh, not being in a hurry. We're not, the mind isn't afraid of going to what's next, but it's not looking for what's next. And this, what this is really about is a receptive quality. So again, whatever you're doing, not just in terms of your meditation experience, but think about this more in terms of your daily life, that you're moving through life, but in a receptive way. So you're not in a hurry for the brushing of the teeth to be done. It will be done when it's done. The conversation will be over when it's over. The cooking will be over when it's over. The chewing of this mouthful of food will be over when it's over. And the mind, the whole kind of inner posture of the heart is receptivity. We're just allowing everything to take the time that it takes. It doesn't mean we're making it take longer, but we're really allowing it to take the time that it actually takes to chew this mouthful of food, to have this conversation, to get up the stairs. And this is the sustaining quality. We're really giving the moment it's due giving the activity the object of the mind, the object of awareness, we're giving it its due. And again, this is uh, this has a certain sweetness too. Both of these, there's a kind of a wholeness that arises with each step of these jhanic factors. The mind's becoming more collected or more whole, and that feels good in the deepest sense. In a way, you could say wholeness is the ultimate medicine 
for a disturbed, burdened heart or mind. What the mind-heart really likes in the deepest sense is wholeness. And what it really doesn't like is separateness or scatteredness or being broken apart or fragmented. And so each of these is a step in that direction. And the sustaining part, this developing this quality in the mind dispels doubt, the tendency to doubt. Being able to really connect with and sustain with an experience, we don't have doubt about the brushing of the teeth or about this interaction because there's a certain like trusting. It is what it is. We're giving it its time and it is what it is. We're not, if we're doubting, that means we're like in a hurry for it to be something other than it is. Or doubting, we might like, is, is this really what it is? We're doubting our experience. Well, of course, our experience is just what it is. And that, that means we're sustaining. That's, that factor of the mind is alive and well when there's no doubt present. So just let's work with these this week, the connecting and sustaining, and just experiment. And you can just set a resolve. One way to do this in your life is just to remember, like you might as well do it now, because you'll forget otherwise. So just choose one of them, maybe connecting, because it's a rel- relatively easy to notice. So on your way of you know, putting away the cushions and walking outside and starting the car, set the resolve in the mind to notice this natural capacity of mind to connect with the present moment object, whatever that might be. Of course, it's going to be changing constantly. And it's almost like a staccato, like you're... Now this, now this. And you can even use that mantra to support this particular contemplation or reflection. You can use that like, oh, now this. This is being known. Or if you want, you can say, this is being connected with. But this is being known. This is being known. And you don't need to use the actual what's being known. Just use this, because it will be changing, you know. And don't try to connect with everything, because there are many, many mind moments in any second, really. So just try to notice the big connections, the bigger objects. This is being now. This is real now. This is happening now. Now this. Now this. Now this. Like you're really landing. Uh, This is the experience of feeling cold wind, and it's like this. This is the exhilaration of being in, in the sort of power of Mother Nature, and it's like this. This is the fear of having a car accident and ruining my new car. It's like this. You know, so you're just connecting with the fear, connecting with whatever arises for you. So I'll leave it here. We'll pick it up next Sunday. The five jhanic factors, again, it's called. But we have about 11 minutes. People have some thoughts you'd like to share with the group from your own practice or any questions about the practice? Yes, Amal. illuminate it. So in general, with our meditation uh, practices, we're working along, uh, we're sort of developing two general things. One is calm, and one is 
seeing things as they are, insight. And sometimes our practice uh, moves more in the direction where we're really emphasizing the development of calm. And other times, we're developing this sort of clearly com comprehending whatever's happening. When we're more at this end of the way of practice, and, and it shifts. You know, We may emphasize this for a while and then that, and sometimes we try to aim right in the middle. But when we're doing more what we call Vipassana practice, then we tend to be less surprised by when sudden things happen. I remember once when I was doing some Vipassana practice, um, somebody just had this huge sneeze. And I noticed, uh, my practice was really good in that moment. You know, I noticed there was no surprise at all. But there was a tremendous force of energy, but there was no reactivity to the, to the power of that person's sneeze. And other times I'll have a response like you, you know, where there was some sound or some activity that surprises the mind, disturbs the mind. That's so when we're doing more of the samadhi versus the vipassana, samadhi can be disturbed. You know, samadhi, the calm, is dependent on certain conditions. And when those conditions get disturbed, the samadhi can break apart, sometimes very quickly, depending on the particular state of samadhi. So, yeah, that, that will happen. And when, what we'd like to do is sort of aim in the middle, a lot, at least to know that place where there really is a kind of calm and tranquility, but there's also a kind of breadth, breadth to the awareness, not just depth, but also a breadth, so that we're not surprised when the calm is interrupted by something else. The sort of steadiness of attention with the breath is interrupted when a painful memory comes, or a pain in the knee arises, or a sneeze arises. Mm -hmm. What else comes to mind? Yeah, Damon. Um, it seems like um, when you're talking about connecting, well, just in general, I feel like it's really hard for me to sustain any connection with anything. Like my mind is just um, very jumbly and all over the place. And then when you broke into the meditation with the thought about like bringing the attention, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I really tried to do it. And I thought, oh, to know what the, this is a distracted mind. Mm -hmm. And it, it and it, it felt a bit like I, like I can't even get to the point where I know that okay this is what a distracted mind is like but like I all I can do is I feel like I can't know anything like I'm just on this more superficial level where I'm just really a victim of everything that's going on and I'm like oh the breath the breath for like a nanosecond and then something else and oh I'm not focusing on the right thing I'm distracted but I can't even know what it feels like to have a distracted mind yeah I don't know if that makes sense yeah, no, it makes I, a lot I, of I sense. can't connect at all with, like if I'm gonna walk out to my car and try to connect with okay now I'm walking outside like what does it really feel like to know that it's cold yeah like, I just feel like I can say I'm, it's cold out, but, like, I can't break into that. It's a very good question. 
and I, I should have, uh, if I had been more skillful, I would have addressed this question in the talk. Because it really has to do, it do with an important point. It's, this is a good place to end for the night. Which is, part of connecting, the real art of connecting is not to determine what your mind should be connecting with. So let me say that again, because it's very important. The real art of developing this practice, especially in daily life, is not to determine what your mind should be connecting with. The great thing is, the mind is already connecting right now. And so it's just knowing what the, the part of the mind that we call attention is already attending to something. There is already connecting happening. What we're doing is illuminating this connecting. That's how you're already knowing something, Damon, in every moment. All you have to do is realize what's already being known, what is already predominant, capturing or drawing the attention to itself. So there's always an object drawing the mind's capacity to know to it. That meeting of object and knowing is always happening. Contact is there. So in a way, it's like having faith. So when the mind's all kind of, I don't know what I'm doing, that's what's predominant. So Joko Beck has this little acronym, ABC, a bigger container. So if you can remember ABC, a bigger container is just like whatever is happening is what's being connected to. Oh, this is happening. This is, you know, being confused about practice is an experience that's being connected with. Doubt, you know, you can call it doubt if you want, if you want to make it just one word, you know. Doubt is like this. Ah, confusion is like this. As opposed to think we should be with the breath, or I should be feeling the cold metal of the key. You know, but the mind's really about wanting to be the perfect meditator. And so that's what we need to connect with. You know, we have to reveal that that's what the mind is connecting with, this feeling of not being good enough. Oh, not being good enough is like this. It's not the coldness of the key as you're unlocking your door, but the actual feeling of being insecure or wanting to be better than you are. That's what's going on. I, I mean, I'm not saying that, but just as an example. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath together. It's always nice to appreciate being here together. And again, appreciating the practice. And we can recall our deepest aspiration to live and practice in a way that supports the well-being of all beings, including ourselves, of course. It's really appropriate to aspire to live and practice in a way that contributes to peace and wisdom and freedom from suffering for all beings without needing to figure out how that's going to be, but just to have that aspiration. May this be so. I want to invite everybody. Tomorrow night we have a visiting Buddhist monk. Maybe some of you have already met Venerable Jyoti Palo. He's on his way from Arrow River up in, uh, near Thunder Bay, the monastery there, to uh, Vermuti Monastery in New Zealand. Some of you met Ajahn Chandika, who's the abbot there. Ajahn Chandika will be back again in July, but Venerable Jyoti Palo is going to be with him for the next year at least uh, there. And he'll be speaking tomorrow night on how to get by on less. 
So that would be a nice talk at 7 o'clock. Everyone's welcome. It's just a drop-in program. Um, and we'll have a reception afterwards or a chance to meet him and just chat with people in the community, 7 to about 8.45. And then you can stay at the reception if you want after that. And then he's going to have an informal tea uh, discussion on Tuesday afternoon, 4 to 6, if you'd like to join Cultivating a Mindful Life, Integrating the Practice into Work, Art, and Play. So a little bit what we've been talking about this last year, and would probably just be a relatively small group having tea and just discussing practice, especially in terms of any crafts or hobbies or activities you like to do out there in the world and how mindfulness looks. And he's just hoping that people will bring their own experiences to that. We also have our quarterly refuge and precepts recitation on Sunday, a week from today, at 11 o'clock. There's a talk and then a short recitation and then a community potluck at 12 noon. And then we're going to do the bulk mailing for the winter flyer right after that at 12.30. So if you're free next Sunday, it's a nice way to get to know the community. It's one of the few traditional Buddhist uh, rituals we do here, taking the refuges and precepts once a quarter. So please join us for that if you'd like. Again, you don't need to uh, register. You can just show up uh, Sunday at 11, or just come for the potluck even is okay. And feel free, free to bring your friends to the potluck if you want. And uh, just to know that our year-end schedule changes because of partly the holidays, but our year-end retreat. So if you're not on our email mailing list, either get on that or make sure to check with the schedule. But basically... We don't have regular programs between the 27th of December through the first of the new year because um, of the year-end retreat. I still don't know when we're going to be in our new building, but it will be sometime the first or second, maybe the third week of January, but hopefully the first week of January. That's another reason to be on our email mailing list. You'll, you'll know where to go. <laughs> if you don't know where to go, we're seven. the new building, seven blocks due west on the same street, 26th Street. So... It'll be either here or there in the next weeks. <laughs> um, and the retreat, the retreat, your end retreat is full, and it looks like well, probably for sure we'll be here, which means that many of you who are on the waiting list uh, won't be able to come because we'll be here, and that means a smaller number of people, unfortunately. I think that's it. Any other announcements for the community people have? Have a safe trip home, everyone. And if you, oh, thanks to Cole for being a program host. If you do have a few minutes to help her put away things, and if you have any questions about the center, you can check in with Cole. Oh, yeah, thank you. And if anybody would like, uh, Jyoti Paolo is interested in seeing, there's an exhibit, Treasures from the Vatican. Maybe some of you have seen that at the Minnesota History Center. And he's here for two more days. He's leaving early Wednesday morning. And uh, he would like to go see that exhibit. If anybody's free midday on Monday or early afternoon on Monday or midday or early afternoon on Tuesday and would like to take him, you can let me know. Uh, generally, if you're a woman, it's uh, for when in the Theravada tradition, you would need to have another person because generally a, a monk wouldn't travel alone in a car, a, a male monk as opposed to a nun with a, just a, a woman. So... Just keep that in mind if you're interested. But just come up afterwards if you're interested, and I'll let you know what the details are. Okay. Anything else? Thanks, everyone. <laughs>